I-94 on Lumpen Radio. And good morning once again, everybody. Welcome to another edition of I-94, Lumpen Radio's books and literature show. As always, my name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. A little out of breath because, of course, he went to the wrong studio. And Mr. <laughs> Michael Sack. Morning, everybody. How are we doing today, guys? All right. Good we, to be live. Yes, it's yeah. good to be live. We're finally back here at Studio B, one of the rare times we can be here due to the pandemic. And we're here today because we have a wonderful, wonderful guest. I'm really excited to be able to present to you. She is the author of The Resistor. It is out now from Knopf Books. Gish Jen is joining us by the miracle of the phone from, I believe, Vermont. Gish, are you with us? Gish. Gish, are you with us? We don't know if Gish is here. Let's see if Gish is here. There we go. Let's try to see if Gish is there. Hello, Gish. How are you? Hi. How are you? Good. Sorry about that. Little technical difficulties. We haven't done this in about, oh... Six Five months. months. Yeah, six months or so. We usually do this out of my house. So apologies for that. You know, there's so many buttons, they all blink, they all flash, and I panic. So, you know, that's what happens here. <laughs> Gish, we're really pleased that you could make some time to talk to us today. Thank you again, first of all, so much. Uh, I think it's a rarity. I think all of us actually really enjoyed the book. Jeremy, you enjoyed yeah, yeah, it too. Yeah, yeah so uh, first of all, could you tell us a little bit, just for our listeners who may not be familiar with your book, this book came out just before, I believe, the pandemic hit. I know I yeah. tried to get it uh, at a bookstore, actually. Uh, at a hospital, bizarrely enough, where I was going to get a COVID test, and I, I couldn't get it. Uh, I was over at Northwestern. Um, but this was billed, I believe, as one of the kind of novels of the year. It's a kind of an allegory of our present times, but it's also a story about baseball, which is something yeah. that the three of us are, are very uh, excited about because we're big White Sox fans, except for Tigers, Mike. Tigers. Yeah, whatever. Uh, we're first in our division, by the way, Mike. Um, so <laughs> we're thrilled to be able to have you on today to talk about writing and sports. And let's start there. I assume you must be a big sports fan as well, right? Actually, you know, embarrassingly, I'm really not. Oh, um, no kidding. I'm actually, but I, I've come from a family of immigrants, let me say. We're Chinese-American, you know, so my parents are from China. And, um, and you know, like many immigrants, uh, they, sports was their big portal into America. So I kind of know sports that way. Um, so that's to say that, um, you know, the first thing that my parents did, you know, the first way they kind of performed being American uh, was to go to a Yankees game. Sorry, it was the Yankees. Um, Boom. And, you know, and to, and to root, you know, they learn all the rules. Of course, as, you know, as is clear in my book, I think, that, you know, they're learning a lot about democracy as they do this. But in any case, they're, you know, this is their first way of learning about America. And they do go on to become major, major, major uh, fans, especially my mother. Wow. Um, so, I mean, you know, so much so that, you know, um, you know, some years ago, my mother was very, very sick. Uh, she was in septic shock. You know, everybody thought that she was going to die. Um, and we all raced down to her, you know, she was, you know, she's comatose, she's, we all race, we're all racing down to her sick bed, and, and, um, you know, she's, you know, my brother, my older brother is trying to get her to respond, right, and, and what does he say to her? He says to her, she says, he says, mom, mom, he says, the Yankees are in a slump. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the Red Sox are eating their lunch. <laughs> and my, my mother, who has been totally unresponsive, that, that, her eyes open. And the first thing she says is, that Aaron Boone should be fired. Of <laughs> 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 the Yankees. And I mean, I mean, that is really, you know, you know what, what meant, meant to me, it, 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 you know, meant to my family. I, and I will say that, you know, my mother unfortunately did die, um, you know, of COVID. Oh, and, I'm sorry. Um, and, you know, and, uh, yeah, I know. Uh, but, you know, we buried her with a Yankees cap. 
you know? Amazing. So, um, so I myself, so weirdly, I'm not the, and I will say also my brother was a major fan and also extremely athletic. So, um, you know, so the same thing where, you know, here we are, we don't really understand a lot about America, but, you know, my, my father brings my f- brother over to this boys club. He's not really sure what this boys club is about, you know, but it's really, um, it's really a, um, it's really a, a, a sports club, right? So they, they rotate these kids in and out of these sports, and, and they discover that my brother can really throw, you know? And so my brother goes on to become, you know, the star pitcher, um, you know, in Yonkers, New York, which is a very serious baseball town, actually. <laughs> and when they take, you know, they take their, their baseball very seriously. Um, my brother goes on to be, you know, one of their best pitchers. At one point, he, you know, he, he is introduced to Tom Seaver, who has been a rookie. Uh-huh. Um, he's introduced Tom Seaver. They say, you know, we have this Chinese kid who can throw, um, which was true. Uh, Tom Seaver uh, taught him to throw a curveball. That's wow. a Hall of Fame and pitcher so, for those of you who don't know. And who just passed away <laughs> as well. Oh, yeah, he did yeah, just anyway, pass away. So he's, anyway, my, I, I, can, I can go on and on. So my brother goes on to have this really classically kind of American childhood where they're playing ball on the streets all the time. And, you know, there's many stories about, you know, he's throwing balls to the neighbor's windows. Um, at one point, he did throw this ball right through a, you know, this neighbor's window. The neighbor comes in to say, or he batted the ball right through the neighbor's window. The neighbor goes, comes over there to say, you know, your kid batted this ball right through my bedroom window. And my mother, my mother who really, you know, she doesn't have a very good hold of, on American society, really. Uh, but, she, but nonetheless, she finds it in herself to say, that can't be right. My, my son is a pitcher. He would have had a designated <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she barely knows who the president is, you know what I mean? But she, knows that, she knows that my brother would have had a designated hitter. Certainly in the American you know, League, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, but, I mean, my point is that, you know, it's so weirdly, I'm not really a sports fan, but I grew up with sports. You know, I mean, it was just part and parcel of my family. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So I, I myself, you asked me, you know, do I know what the statistics are? No, I really don't, you know. But I know, I know baseball sort of very well another way, kind of the outsider's way. And, and I think you could sort of see why, how that would give rise to a character like Gwen, my, you know, my pitcher, mm-hmm. um, who was very much, um, you know, an, out, an outsider. You know, she comes to a cheat. <laughs> it just so happens that she can really throw, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, about <laughs> Gwen, I, that brings up what a question I wanted to ask you. You know, I, I was yeah. just watching, of course, the U.S. Open, and I have thought of Gwen as being based on Naomi Osaka. Uh, and I could yep. be dead wrong, but I, uh, I, that was how I thought of her. And I don't know whether Naomi Osaka was in your, in your head. You know, for those people that don't know, Osaka's won the U.S. Open twice. She is a, a, a black woman who grew up in Japan. Um, so she, she kind of, to me, was the uh, physical embodiment. I guess, of Gwen, uh, with her hair bobbing up and down and, and her very kind of uh, preternatural calmness on the tennis court, which she is known for. Um, you know, that is a, a great connection for you to make. Um, so um, I did invent Gwen, who is Blasian, meaning she's half black and half Asian, like Naomi Osaka, um, and like Tiger Woods. Um, I, you know, I, I invented Gwen before I knew about Naomi Osaka. But no sooner was my manuscript in then there was this big profile for her in the New York Times magazine. I thought, oh, my God, there she is. It's Gwen, <laughs> you know. And um, I, mean, I was just, you know, honestly, as, as a writer, you know, I had a problem. And it, my problem was that, um, was that uh, I needed to make it credible that this girl could throw, you know, 85 miles an hour if she needs to be able to do, right? And, you know, I was just thinking about that. And, you know, I was looking at Tiger Woods one day, and I just thought, 
You know, we just don't know what these Belgian athletes can do. You know, we, we don't know. There are not that many of them. And, you know, I have a feeling that, you know, yeah, you gotta, if you get a Blasian girl out there, that she could really, you know, she, she might be able to really throw. Well, you know what the thing and, that you know, made it that, credible that for was, me? That was, just, that was just my guess. That was just my guess. And then here is Naomi Osaka. <laughs> and Naomi Osaka, not, not only can she, you know, sure enough, can she, you know, does she have the preternatural calm, which, you know, which Gwen has, and the unbelievable physical, you know, um, ability that, that Gwen does. She also has a social conscience. You know, so, I mean, you know, to me, I mean, it, it really is like, um, like, you know, like I say, Gwen was a product of my imagination. But it is true that the overlap between her and Naomi Osaka is, is uncanny. I wanted to tell you something, Gish, and then ask you a question. Yep. But um, we're uh, in Bridgeport in Chicago. We're just south of Chinatown. We have a huge Chinese-American population here in this neighborhood. And it's funny you're telling that story because uh, I work at the library in this neighborhood. And my one of my staff is Chinese-American. And her dad did the same thing with the White Sox that you were talking about with your mother with the Yankees to uh, learn the culture and to acclimate. And it's interesting. Uh, I've my grandfather did it with football. He came from Poland. And it's uh, I've never really thought of it, you know, as something that immigrants might do. But the my other- mom did the same thing. Actually, she is a Yankees fan as well. When her family came over from Scotland, your mom, my mom, yeah, yeah. who uh, she she came over from from Aberdeen, Scotland, and she uh, she also is a Yankees fan, much to my shame. So you know, <laughs> we have that that in common. Dish. But well, I, let, I, let me just sort of say that you know, I, you know, I live in Boston, and you know, I'm also <laughs> well, my family are rabid Yankees fans, and you know, it's kind of difficult, honestly. Um, <laughs> but um, but I think what you're saying is, I mean, this, so this this path that my parents were on, as you're all saying, is with a it's a very common path. In other words, it, you know, so this is the way that many, many, many immigrants, you know, kind of they, they you know they acculturate, and also they they learn a lot about what America is, right? I mean, you know, baseball is not any old sport, right? I mean, baseball is the American sport. And so many of our American ideals are kind of are embedded in baseball, you know? I mean, the whole idea that you should have a level playing field, that everybody should have a turn at bat, you know, kind of the balance between the individual and, and the collective is, is there. Um, you know, so they're watching it. And, and, and you know, if you're, especially if you come from someplace like China, like all these ideas are extremely foreign. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, extremely extremely so um, and the whole idea that you should have a game where the, the rules are set up in such a way as to enable the individual to realize something in themselves do you know what I mean oh, absolutely. So, you know the, the whole idea that we have you know a, a rules rules that we all agree on you know it's that it's, an, it's a space that's governed by elective rules like that is very weird if you come from China you know? <laughs> and they're like wait what you know? <laughs> um, it's actually so a little so weird that, a little weird yeah. here too. I was wondering, what did you do? You did some research, obviously, that Satchel Page is brought up. Um, I know there's been a little bit of resurgence in, in literature with Satchel Page, some biographies coming out, things like that. But did you have to hunker down with some serious baseball history, or was this just yeah, things? Yeah, of course. Of course. I, you know, I, I, I read every single thing um, that was written about Satchel and that he wrote himself. Um, and, um, you know, and, it, you know, Satchel's story, of course, is, you know, it was just so touching. I mean, it's just so amazing. Uh, I think, 
You know, because well, what I love, too, is the way he, up, you know, overturns some ideas that we have. I mean, the whole idea that a reform school, for example, is just, ter- you know, a terrible, terrible place that you would never want to be in. Well, you know, in his case, without the reform school, who knew? Who knows whether he ever would have learned to pitch, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, right? I mean, that's where he learned to pitch. So, it, you know, for him, it wasn't such a bad thing. Um, you know, so there's, you know, there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's a lot there. Um, and, of course, I was, you know, I, and it's fascinating, too, you know, you know, the way that, you know, it, it, the, the baseball world that he was in, I mean, I don't mean to, look, it's a, this whole thing about there being Negro Leagues is a bad thing. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I don't mean to kind of paint this thing where, like, it really wasn't so bad. It was so bad. Um, but it is true. It's a very kind of creative arena, you know, where they would be pitching, you know, kind of pitches that, that, that you know, that the American leagues don't, don't you know, the mainstream um, leagues don't allow, you know? And the whole idea that he'd be doing this thing like the hesitation pitch, you know what I mean? And that wasn't the only pitch. You know, That's he called had all balking kinds of pitches. in the... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all, all yeah, exactly. But, but he threw all kinds of pitches that, you know what I mean, that are just not stand, you know, kind of standard yeah. repertoire, you know? The other and, part of the um, research that got me was... Thing, yeah? was uh, Jackie Mitchell. That's the thing that made, yeah. honestly, Gwen credible to me was... I'm a huge baseball fan. I've been playing since I could yeah. walk. Basically. Who's Jackie Mitchell? I mean. She she's the woman. She's she's a real historical person. She in '31, I want to say she she pitched for the Chattanooga, Chattanooga Lookouts Double A right. team. She oh, struck out yeah, Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig back to back. That's why she wears the hat. And yes, then three yes. days later, she had her contract voided for being a woman. That that's yep. the story that made Gwen credible to me because I didn't know that, and it, it just kind of you know exploded something in my head. Well, she struck out Babe Ruth, famously. Yeah. That, that and then Lou Gehrig. Lou Gehrig yeah, yeah. also. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So. In an exhibition game. Right. I mean, there's some controversy about that, about whether, you know what I mean, whether this was really a publicity. Sure, but she's a real historical figure, but you know? She's a real, but she is a real figure, and she really did do that. And, um, and of course, there's, you know, there's other people, too, kind of in the background, I'm looking at all the people like Mamie Peanut Johnson. You know, I mean, some of these, some of these women's pictures are just amazing, you know. Because I've always had a, um, a soft spot for Mamie Peanut Johnson because, you know, she's like, a, yeah. they, they say she was 105 pounds, like, dripping wet in her uniform. <laughs> and yeah. I myself, you, 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 well, I'm not in your studio, but I myself am five feet tall. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I weigh a little more than that now, but not a lot more. And, it's, you know, and I could just see her, this tiny thing on the mound, you know, this tiny African-American woman on the mound, you know. And, you know, she can really throw. You can really throw, yeah. and there's something there about you know, kind of our national sport, the sport that is synonymous with America, being so closed, you know, for so many years to African Americans, but also to women, you know, right? Um, you know that I think that we really need to think about. I mean, like as we speak, you know, as you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is headed to the to the Capitol to you know, to Lyons State, you know, first woman ever to Lyons State in the U.S. Capitol. I mean, in the history of the America. You know, America's a great democracy, but we have some really big issues, and um, and one of them certainly is is around women. Yeah. And um, and I like I say, you know, it's you know, this is not like some this long ago historical thing. This is going on right now in real time. And um, anyway, and so you know, my book is like you know, on one hand, of course, it's a lot about baseball, but it's a lot about democracy, right? I mean, it's a lot about you know, you know, you know, who are we? Where are we going? 
Yeah. And I want to get to that. I do want to make one just historical point for, for people who live in Chicago. The the last woman who was signed to a major league contract, the actual first one was Carrie Schuler, and she was signed by the Chicago White Sox. She oh, was the too. daughter of Ron Schuler, who I believe was the general manager. And that was back in 99, 1997. The Sox actually broke the prohibition. Really? Yes, on signing uh, women in baseball. Did, did she play in the farm Yay. league? She did, yes. Carrie Schuler played in the farm league. She never made, as far as I'm aware, she did not make a major league debut, but that was a very controversial thing that, that our good guys did. Uh, not your good guys, because right, you're a Detroit Tigers fan. Uh, but, you know, uh, but, you know we, are gonna, we are talking about the book. We're talking with Gish Jen. She's the author of The Resistors. And, you know, I'd like to take a minute, actually, here just to play some stuff from the book, uh, just so people can get a feel of what we're talking about here. Uh, as always, we want to thank our reader, Shanna Van Volt. Uh, she does a great job for us. And we want to thank International Anthem. Today, Jamie Branch uh, did the music for us, so we'll be hearing from her. Uh, we'll be back in about uh, three or four minutes. Gish, you're not going anywhere, right? No, I'm sitting right here. Good. Let's hear a, sec- a selection from your book, and then we're going to be right back here on I-94. We surplus did not have much contact with the planet, thanks in part to zoning laws. The highest, driest towns were generally zoned 10 acres, while swamps like ours had no minimum acreage. Aunt Nanny didn't have to segregate netted from surplus, in short. What with basic income so modest, we self-segregated as easily as sand and water. Of course, long ago many of us surplus would have been the help on which the netted relied, in which capacity we would not have only known them, but known them intimately. Before the auto house and the auto lawn, we would have known their underwear and their shoes and their trash. We would have known their crises and their joys and their affairs. In fact, even just working as I had in a university job, I had a glimpse into many such things, the lives of the netted to be so closely resembling, at that point, the lives of the surplus to be. But now I track the sky car to its charging shed with fascination. Was not the billowing of the sky car's luminescent wings astonishing? Or what about the landing gear that bent at the ankles so the vehicle could descend not parallel to the ground, but at a 45 degree angle? How Leonardo da Vinci would have loved this thing, I thought, as the machine reached out its wheels like a hawk about to snatch a bowl with its claws. It rolled majestically down the last few hundred feet of the driveway. There was no pilot, of course. Still, the males in the cockpit managed to look as though they were in charge, scrutinizing the pavement out ahead of the sky car and moving their mouths, giving directions, apparently, to a voice box. A bit of a surprise. Thought command was expensive, but still I would have thought all the net had had it. Auto dogs trotted everywhere, in any case, to chase away the Canada geese, I presumed. While in the back seat, a woman and a girl laughed and another girl frowned at her handphone. How flax and fair these people were, how perfectly pulled together. You could all but hear them answering, Yes, when How Do I Look asked if they wanted the consummately casual option. And no one was consuming anything that was noticeable. None of them got out of the sky car with a snack in hand. They had what my mother would have called very nice manners, church manners, even when not in church. Indeed, the two older people carried nothing at all, their devices no doubt accessible via the smart glasses they seemed to be scanning as they walked, while the three younger people hoisted what looked to be rather heavy backpacks. Did the backpacks contain books? Certainly, when the young people adjusted their packs, their contents had that distinctly blockish way of shifting. Had their teachers opted for paper over screen read because Aunt Nettie could then not keep tabs on their reading? Or were the studies simply showing, as they had long ago, that students learn better from the printed page? And where were their house spots? Why did these young people have to carry the backpacks themselves? And was this a family with three children, or was one of the girls a friend? I couldn't tell. Though, three children, or even two. For Gwen to have some company, what a happy cacophony my sisters Maria Elena and Elaine had made before their back-to-back heart attacks years ago, so much so that their raucous quiet haunted me still. 
If only Gwen could have had a sister, someone like Andi, except who wouldn't abandon her, who would stay. The house, large and many balconies, sat on a quiet cul-de-sac with nary a mall truck in sight. Of course, netted lives were full of pressure, I had heard that, and I did think I could see it in the way these people trudged up their beautiful stairs. They were not light-hearted, they were preoccupied. Where we surplus had to concertedly consume, after all, they had to concertedly produce. And what a life it could be, I remembered. The meetings, the conferences, the politics, the anxiety about success, how you fought to define it for yourself, even as others blithely defined it for you. People say that the netted looked at our lives with envy, to be state-supported, to draw a basic income for doing nothing. Gwen once showed me an online chat in which a netted, somehow crossing into surplus space, claimed that he'd changed places with one of us in a heartbeat. Naturally, he was missing a lot of the picture, as Gwen could have pointed out. Instead, she had simply collapsed his 3D figure first into 2D and then into a point. What an ass, she said. She was contemptuous. Yet as I watched the people file into their beautiful house, I could not help but notice their air of exhaustion. Maybe they just had a long day, but they did not exactly walk as if reveling in their good luck and being netted. They walked as if they had enormous boulders to roll up a hill and no rock bots to help. And that was a selection from Gish Jen's new novel, The Resistors. It's out now from Knopf. Gish, a really great passage there. I chose that actually just because, uh, well, first of all, I I thought it really kind of summed up the world that you built there. And that was something the guys and I were talking about before the show. I think you did a really great job of of building a a credible world. Uh, that I thought read kind of as an allegory for the the present times we're in with with great inequality, but also this kind of sarcastic kick in the pants of uh, people that are forced to produce and people that are forced to consume and uh, very hard striations between the two. Yeah, but, you know, um, that is exactly right. I mean, as you're saying, I mean, there are two classes in this world, you know, the netted and the surplus. Um, You know, the surplus are, are people, as you gather from the passage, who are, you know, primary uh, function is to consume and you know who are being you are being supported um but let's face it you know the netted the the people who are producing are not much interested in 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 uh, supporting them forever right they do have a universal basic income but they're also being allowed to die out now you know i have to say that when i wrote this book of course i'm i was just you know sitting down in 2017 and you know i'm just extrapolating from what i am seeing around me um I never would have imagined that um, that just as, like I say, the surplus are kind of allowed to kind of die out, like no one is much interested in keeping them alive. I would never have imagined that we'd be looking at COVID, you know, this year the way we are with, you know, with, you know, with a lot of people's attitude toward the people who are dying, especially the elderly, kind of like, well, basically, they're not producing, right? So we, not everybody really cares that much about them. Um, and like I say, I, you know, I did not mean, um, a lot of people said, like, oh, my God, that's so prescient. I mean, I, I'm horrified, really, by how prescient my book has turned out to be. Um, but, uh, yeah, this, you know, the, so the, the world in the book is, um, is kind of an exaggerated world um, version of the world that we do live in, I'm so sorry to say. Um, you know, I mean, there is a lot of critique of capitalism in this and so on, um, that we could go into that or not, if you like. Um, but the fact of the matter is that um, that it is a world where many people are seen as surplus. Um, even though the people who are netted, like there are people who are associated with Aunt Nettie, who, is, as you know, is kind of a kind of a mashup between the internet and um, and um, artificial intelligence. So it's kind of a super internet. And Big Brother. Um, Aunt Nettie, 
Yeah, and Nettie, who you know, kind of runs, who kind of runs things, and with whom the netted are, you know, affiliated. Uh, you know, the netted are not having a great time either, and I have to say that that also seems to be true <laughs> <laughs> in, in today's society. That you know, you can be. The funny thing is, that the, the winners are not really having that great a time. You know, everyone they're really, really, really overworked, um, and um, and so you know, the, my critique kind of you know goes both ways. I wanted to say that you did a fantastic job. There's a lot of dystopian fiction now where the setting is, you know, the focus of the story. I was thinking of things like Station Eleven or The Road by Cormac McCarthy. And what I liked about your book is the dystopian aspects were in the background and the the story was really about Gwen and her family. And I think that was something that you pulled off extraordinarily well and something that's also extraordinarily difficult. So much so that I was wondering if there were other manuscripts uh, uh, about events that take place before the the time that we're reading. Yeah, and just to follow on that, you know, it reminded me, I don't know how, uh, if you're into comic books at all, Gish, but there is a... um, popular comic book put out by Image called Lazarus by Greg Rucka and Mike Lark, which has a group of people who are uh, surplus. They're, they're called Waste in the comic book. And the, the world <laughs> is, nice. is ruled by uh, eight families. Um, and the story is actually about a young woman who's been grown in a lab, and she's she's basically uh, their version of Gwen. You know, there's not there's not a ton of similarities between your book, but I, I happen to be a big comic fan, so I've read it, and I was struck by the fact that we seem to be on this vein of fiction where uh, you know the the dystopia seem to revolve around um, you know large segments of society being cast off in a sense. Yeah, well, um, I, I don't know that that comic book, but I will definitely look it up. I mean, it sounds really interesting, and um, um, I think that. Um, and, and thank you for your compliments. I mean, I, um, I there is no prequel or sequel. Um, although <laughs> my, my my book was barely done before people started talking about a sequel. I mean, you know, Stephen King read this book in manuscript and immediately started saying, "Where's the sequel?" <laughs> I was just like he would know, a little a little mercy, please, a little mercy, please. You know, what I mean, I mean, truly, I've just finished. I mean, I think that I myself would like to go out. And you know, have a cappuccino, sit on the dock for a few minutes. Well, that's not, um, a, that's not a bad thing that Stephen King wants a sequel. Yeah, of course, Stephen King writes a book every six minutes. Uh, probably know, sitting in his bathtub. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. I think some of us do not have your, um, your, you know, your, your habits, Stephen. Yeah. But in any case, um, uh, but, you know, but so, so the answer is there is no prequel and there is no sequel. You know, and I did just make the world up as I went. You know what I mean? And, and it is interesting because... Um, I, you know, I do come from quote-unquote literary fiction. You know, obviously I've, I've borrowed from genre fiction for this book, um, and that means that I am, you know, very story-oriented. Um, you know, I have not even heard the term world-building, which I gather is a big word in, in MFA programs now. Um, I had not, never even heard that word, hmm. that word. You know, I was just kind of, honestly, I was just having fun and making it up as I went along. Um, it's interesting to me myself that, that the world-building came so easily, and, you know, when I stopped to think about it, um, I did write this book very fast, so I wasn't really spending a lot of time <laughs> navel-gazing, you know, I was mostly just writing, you know. But, um, but when I started to think about it, I realized that I had actually read a lot of science fiction when I was in junior high school. So, you know, my first literary subscription um, was to fantasy and science fiction, you know, the, the magazine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that was the first sort of, um, that's the first uh, subscription I ever had. Um, I did grow up in kind of it's kind of a golden age of, of, of science fiction. So this is Isaac Asimov and, and Robert Heinlein and Ray Bradbury, um, and um, you know, and I and I had a I had a best friend who was very interested in this stuff. So I I read everything forwards and backwards. 
Um, there's a lot of apocalyptic fiction, too, you know, Canticle for Leibowitz, Wild for Algonon, these kind of titles. Um, you know, because, of course, everybody then was still, you know, everyone was, it, we were, Darkness at Noon, we're all in the shadow of, you know, the Cold War. You know, everyone's very worried about, you know. This did have a very Cold War vibe to me. The, with yeah, the, but oh you yeah. Could sort yeah. Of, China, Russia. Right, but, so, uh, but you could sort of see that all come, you know, but now here we are on the, you know. Back uh, again. I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everything comes around. I mean, so here we are again at a moment when, um, the world seems to be, you know, things with China are very tense, and um, as I don't need to tell you, and I, you know, it's, it, 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 we are kind of in this quasi-Cold War again, and weirdly, all that fiction that I had, you know, inhaled, I don't know how many years ago that is now, was all, it was all still there, you know, so that, like, when I was, you know, so I'm reaching for this and reaching for that, and it, it, it's, it's, as if, it's as if, it was as if I had been writing this kind of fiction all the way along. Um, which, like I say, I'm, you know, I'm primarily a realistic writer. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, many of the, you know, thematically, this is very much tied into my earlier work, but, but stylistically, it's very, very different. And um, like I say, I myself was a little astonished at how easily it came. I mean, it was just, um, you know, when people sort of say, "Oh, so natural," and it doesn't dominate because, you know, I'm not, you can feel that I'm not straining, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and uh, you know, for reasons that that you know I don't understand. But you know, to me, it was funny because I'm. Even as I'm writing about a girl who just who just who can just pitch, you know, <laughs> it's just there. Mm-hmm. Um, I myself am finding that, like, oh my, oh my God, like I I can just do this, and I didn't know I could do it, but I am doing it. You yeah, know? A, a little bit, a little bit like Gwen. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so it was, it was kind of a funny thing. I will say though that you know I cannot pitch at all. <laughs> <laughs> I well, none of us, none of us here, I don't think can either. Actually, Mike can. <laughs> oh, can Mike? Oh, well, there you go. Unknown things about oh, Michael. Oh, you a pitcher? No, no. <laughs> oh. I mean, I had pitched, but when I got older in real competitive baseball, it was I was an infielder. Oh, oh, I thought you were a pitcher. For no, no. All right, we got to take a quick break. Gish, you're not going anywhere, right? You're okay. sticking with us. Okay. Uh, we are speaking with Gish Chen. She is the author of the Resistors. We do need to take a quick little break here and uh, remind folks of who makes this station possible. And when we come back, we're going to have another uh, excerpt from Gish Chen's book. Again, she is the author of the Resistors. It's out now from Nop, and you are listening to I ninety four here on WLPNLP Chicago one hundred five five FM. This fall, only on I-94. Gis Jen, Ivan Vladislavich, Wendy Erskine, Lucy Britch, Taya Krulos, David Wyden, Lee Weiner, Jen Craig, and many, many more. Only on Love and Radio's Books and Literature show, I-94. Every Sunday and Thursday morning, 11 a.m. And now, back to I-94 on Lumpin' Radio. Playing in the underground league, Gwen and the Lookouts had, of course, analyzed and strategized. They were outfielders towards whom they hit every ball possible, knowing how buttered-fingered they were, how absent-minded, or how error-prone. There were batters to whom Gwen pitched fastballs and batters to whom she pitched curveballs, but the lookouts had never focused on a rival the way Net Yu focused on China Russia. As Gwen wrote, focus isn't even the right word. The word is obsess. They obsess about China Russia, I guess because of the stories. To begin with, China Russia, having absorbed most of Asia, they did have those Japanese players, some of the finest in the world, but more important, they had homo upgrade. As for what that really meant, who knew? 
We still traded with China Russia, everyone did, but no live China Russian had set foot in Auto America since shipping back. So what were the China Russians like now? Did they have quicker reflexes, larger biceps, better vision, longer strides? People said that the GenNet improvement had produced a lot of freaks, geniuses who could not count, muscle men who could knock over small trucks, giants who had to be fed by cranes. Visitors who had managed a peak sent back reports as crazy as Marco Polo's with one particularly bad piece of news from the NetU baseball team's point of view. The Chine Russian players, people said, were all switch hitters. Perhaps all of this was fear, pure and simple on the part of Gwen's teammates, but feeding their obsession, of course, was the sense that baseball was more than a sport, that it was a crown jewel. There were people who said it wasn't even invented in America. There were people who pointed out it was mentioned by Jane Austen long before it was ever mentioned here. But if baseball took on a hollowed meaning, it took on that meeting in our American dreams. For was this not the level playing field we envisioned, the field on which people could show what they were made of? And didn't we Americans believe, above all, that everyone should have a real chance at bat? Didn't we believe that with the good of the team at heart, something in us might just hit a ball off our shoe tops and send it sailing clear out of the park? If Gwen's teammates were playing for China Russia for something, I thought it was for this. For a chance to show, my mother would have said, that even if we returned to the dirt and the wind and the rain like the plants and the animals, we had a bigness in us. Something beyond algorithms and beyond upgrades, something we were proud to call human, or so it seemed to me. And welcome back. You are listening, of course, to I-94. This is Lumpen Radio's Books and Literature Show. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Hello. And Mr. Michael Sack. Hey, hey. And you just heard an excerpt from Gish Jen's great new novel. It's called The Resistors. It's out from Knopf. We've been speaking to her for the past half hour about her book, about science fiction, about world building, about Gwenny, and about Naomi Osaka, which was kind of a you know detour, but then again, she did win the U.S. Open. Uh, that was a little passage about the Underground Baseball League, which plays a major part in this book. It's where the pitcher Gwen first rises to prominence. We first find out that she can throw a ball. But also it sets up uh, the big uh, kind of set piece at the end of the book where Gwen, and I don't think I'm I'm giving anything away really here, Gwen is going to um, go to, I think, what passes for a university uh, in this world, and she's going to be forced to kind of pitch for uh, the Netted, which is the other group of people in this world. Uh, She is a member of the Surplus, uh, and she is going to have to face, uh, I guess, Auto America's bogeyman, which is China Russia. Um, Gish, can you talk a little bit about uh, this setup? Because for me, the book really picked up uh, in the second half when she starts to attend uh, this kind of university, uh, and she, uh, you know, meets a coach, and uh, he develops her, and uh, we start to see some of the tensions between herself and some of the other people. I think it's a really interesting exploration of kind of um, class and capitalism that takes part over largely the second half of this book. Um, yeah, you know, of course, you know, <laughs> like all writers, you know, I'm always loath to talk about the second half. I'm like, don't give it away, don't give it away, don't give it away. Um, but yes, but okay, if we give out one plot thing, it is that she does, um, after, you know, much hesitation, um, go to play for the netted, because the netted have a, a university, net you, the supposed to not have a university, they don't have, you know, there's no league in which she could compete at this level. Um, but obviously for her, it's, you know, she's in enemy territory, you know. I mean, so, you know, her, her, she comes from a resistance family, and um, 
uh, they are against, I mean, these are the oppressors. These are the people that have kept her, pe- her, her family, you know, in the position that it's in. Um, there is kind of a, a, you know, a race class divide in the sense that uh, the netted, um, while the while the surplus are not all people are not all people of color, there are some white people as well, um, but the netted are all, you know, Caucasian. And um, you call them angel fair in the book. Yeah, they're angel fair. Um, I, you know, they're, they're angel they, fair they, versus they, copper toned. Yeah. So you know, and they're so the. Um, so the surplus people are, you know, are, are much more mixed bunch. You know, they do include, as I so, so say, not only people who are copper tones, but not only skin color, it's also they're odd-bodied, meaning they're not, you know, they're handicapped in some ways. Um, um, they are the odd-godded, meaning they have religions, you know, like they're Muslims or whatever. Um, and then, <laughs> and sure enough, they all end up on, on, the, on the side of, of, you know, of the society where they don't have jobs. So they all end up surplus. Um, and you know that's that's the, that's the side um, that Gwen comes from, and for her to go and pitch, you know, to attend, you know, net you on one hand, this is her, her ticket out, and uh, they do offer her a ticket out, and a ticket not just for her but for her whole family, and you know, the question for her is, can she accept that ticket out? Do you know what I mean? Can she go ahead and knowing what the oppression is, can, can she go ahead and say, okay, I'm now going to sell out? I'm going to save myself, save my family. We're, we're all going to be out. Well, also, her her mother is suing that. these people, too. I mean, and, you know, this is noted yeah. on the, I mean, I'm not giving anything away. This is mentioned on the jacket flap of the book for people, yeah. you know, you know, the people who, who pick this book at a bookstore are going to know that part of the plot. She is suing these people uh, because she's trying to get more rights for the surplus as well. Yes. So, so, um, so Gwen's mother, Eleanor, is a very noted uh, lawyer. Uh, she is, in fact, you know, kind of the lead lawyer for the surplus, if you will. Uh, she's kind of an Atticus Finch type figure. Um, you know, justice means a lot to her. Um, that means everything to her. Um, and so, you know, for Gwen to be in this position where she could, yeah, ask her mother also to cross over, as they call it, um, it's you know, it's it's a big it's a big problem for them. And I mean, I don't want to give away how she chooses, but. Um, and I think I think that that but that tension between kind of like well do you do you just go ahead and sell it or not you know do you play along with a system that you know to be corrupt and wrong and oppressive or not um, you know this is this is a dilemma that you know you don't have to be <laughs> in this in this crazy dystopian world to feel I mean I think a lot of people feel it you know so at one at what point have you sold your sold your soul you know I mean how much can how much can you play along. Um, you know, is it, you know, what, what if it means that, you know, you have some God-given gifts, like in Clint's case, you know, to, to pitch, you know, weren't you kind of put on earth to use that, you know? And then, so can you really deny, I don't know, whatever the powers that be that gave you this thing, you know, uh, its full expression? Uh, you know, I think, to, to, you know, to me, these, these questions, like I say, I, I don't think you have to be in a dystopian a novel to, to, to wonder, you know, where the answers are. Well, it's interesting and that you mentioned that. One thing that was interesting about uh, um, the setting of the book was that the netted and the surplus don't really have, they, they don't have any contact. In fact, when, in the book, when their worlds do meet, there's, there, there are exchanges of dialogue, with one asking the other what goes on in their world and, and yeah. comparing the, the differences, mainly differences and some similarities. Um, and you know, for 
in my mind while I was reading it, I was thinking like, huh, that's, I mean, is that really realistic? And then I had to think about it for a second. And this is what I really liked about the book. For me personally, more than the plot was the, was the details, the intricacies of, of how the world functioned. Um, and I, I thought about it as compared to, to my present day reality. And you know, like, do I really know how CEOs live or like VPs or execs of, of companies? It's really all I know about them is what I see on television. And I, and I bet if I asked all the people I work jobs with at, you know, restaurants and manufacturing jobs here, it, it would be similar to them. So like, that was what really hit me hard about the book is when I, I started to challenge it and thinking that it, it wasn't realistic and then reverting back to my own experience and saying, hey, that what well, that kind of is how things really are. Well, and that's how our politicians are now, too. Like the joke I always say, like when someone's running, I'm like, I bet that man or woman has never touched a shovel or washed their own dishes, you know. And, <laughs> Just and, for the photo shoot. Yeah, yeah. And, and then it's like, how do you relate? Um, I, I also wanted to, to mention, too, that I, I liked uh, in the beginning, the very beginning of the novel when um, Gwen was still a baby and she would like chuck her stuffed animals uh, <laughs> uh, outside. And, and it also set up the rest of the novel because of, we learned of the automation of the house and how the netted are watching over in this, as you said, combination of the Internet AI. And I, I mentioned Big Brother, too. It, it's definitely I had a little bit of a. Well, it's a surveillance state. Surveillance oh, state. Yeah, 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 it's a yeah. surveillance state. So. And I liked how you set that up. You know, it was like she would chuck this doll, I'm sorry, the stuffed animal out, out of her crib, and then, you know, they would go into how the house was completely automated. And I thought, I, you just have an amazing way of setting things up without being obvious. Well, one thing that we haven't brought up, you know, that, that I think leads into that is the novel is told from the point of view of Gwen's father. Yeah, yeah. So, and I, I wanted to ask you about that decision because I thought it was a, a profitable one, to be honest with you. I thought that uh, his voice and, you know, his own misgivings, um, <clears throat> I don't want to give away, you know, uh, anything going forward, but he uh, is very protective of Gwen and is going to do some things in the book that, um, you know, are somewhat questionable. Uh, they're done out of the right motives, but they're, they're definitely questionable. And um, I wondered why you chose to tell it from his his point of view. It, it very much reminded me, I don't know if you're familiar with, I believe it's John Wyndham's book, Chalky, about the oh, young yeah. boy uh, who kind of develops an alien mind. And that story is also told by his father. Uh, that was a classic piece of British sci-fi from, I believe, the late 50s or late 60s. But it, it reminded me very much of that. It had that kind of story um, uh, child story feel but you know more sophisticated than uh you know a tale we would tell to children if that makes sense and a bit of humor thrown in with the resistance too Mm -hmm. you know there was there was definitely some uh it i don't want to say it's it's not light-hearted but there's definitely dark humor interspersed too yeah yeah um so you know you guys have said so much, I kind of... <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry. No, 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 I'm, and I'm thrilled, I'm thrilled. Um, well, let me just talk about um, my, you know, honestly, the, the, the reason I chose Grant was because, um, to, to, as a narrator, was because as I was writing it, it became clear to me that I had actually kind of two larger-than-life characters, right? Because I have Gwen, you know, who's this preternaturally gifted pitcher, and I also have this, you know, this titanic lawyer, you know? And, you know, you know as, just as a writer, you know, you know my, first, my first challenge is, is putting that over on a reader. Like, you know, are they really going to believe that these guys are, are these larger-than-life, you know, um, figures? And, and you know, if you think about it, it's like, you know, anytime you wanted to make, you know, you're, you're taking a picture of a, of a statue, and you want to get across that this is a really large statue, right? 
Well, you don't take it from the air. You take it from the ground. You know, so you take it from you know somebody who's looking up at the statue. So I, you know, I needed like an ordinary mortal in this picture, you know, like a really normal person, you know, through whom we could see like the picture. Like a lot of people have sort of said, well, why doesn't Gwen just tell her story herself? But you know, but you think about it, like what could be less convincing and like more boring and off-putting than some young girl sort of saying like, God, you know, I am really talented. Like, <laughs> wow, I mean, you can't believe I meet, how talented I, I am. I meet a lot of those I, people. I, yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> have you looked I at Instagram? <laughs> Exactly. You know, you're thinking, like, oh, my God, she's delusional. You know what I mean? This is an unreliable narrator. Yeah. You know, she's going on like, you know, like, I think I might be a female satchel page. You know? <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, end of book, right? Uh, and, you know, it's, and, and, and similarly to the lawyer, you know, like, I am, you know, I am the voice of the righteous. You know? <laughs> I am the last thing standing between, you know, between humanity and tyranny. Again, I meet a lot of like, those people. It's like, it's like, yeah. uh oh, right? Like, I mean, that is the, you know, you, you are really, you know, just as a writer, like, you know, you are really in, in, in very bad territory. <laughs> so I needed an ordinary mortal. And then when I sort of thought, that, you know, so you sort of see that, you know, it's going to have a, you know, this family's got three people in it. And then just as, just as, you know, as a woman today, I mean, I could not have, a, a, you know, a mother with this titanic son and this titanic husband. The answer is like, no way, you know what I mean? No way. So it had to be that the, that the, the father of the family was the one, you know, the lens through which we could see just how amazing these figures are. And, um, and it had to be a guy. So that it's sort of, that, that's kind of, it's, that sounds a little like, um, anyway, you can sort of see from a craft point of view, I simply, I simply had, you know, an issue. Yeah. And um, yeah, it- I can't forget, you guys read so many, oh, 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 about the segregation. You know, I, I, th- I do think that, you know, your point that, that you know, that, this, that our world is unbelievably segregated, and that we really, truly do not understand how other people live, and that it's, you know, it's, it's part of the racial divide, it's the class divide is just unbelievable. The class divide's um, and insane, and, and we don't talk enough about that as a society. Yeah. It's, you know, we, yeah. we do talk about race and segregation, especially <laughs> in urban settings, but... The, the class divide, and you know, obviously we see it in your book, but you know, that's why it's just so difficult for that for me to, you know, to get behind even like a politician because they don't know how we live. Yeah. You know, especially here in Chicago where we are, you know, deeply segregated, white, uh, black, and Hispanic. You know, it's it's almost even third split. And of course, as I'm sure you're aware, Chicago's had its own fair share of problems. We're on the yeah. south side of Chicago, which has um, been you know historically disenfranchised. So. Uh, you know, some of these arguments have, have real resonance for us here as well. Yeah. Well, you know, but in my, in my book, but the, the, you know, one of the things that I, you know, I, I try to establish is, you know, kind of where does this come from? And partly, of course, there have been policies. But, you know, a lot of it, you know, in my book, the, the reason these, these populists don't know each other is just zoning. You know, they just zoned it that way. Right. <laughs> well, of course, that's, that's the way the it is zone, here, too. The zoning laws yeah, yeah, are, yeah. Are, you know, are, are what's enforcing the divide. It's changing and, here, but we, that, we have that, yeah. too. But I, I do want to say that, you know, one of the things that, it, again, is, you know, I, I enjoyed the book and I, the subtlety of the politics because a lot of the stuff you read now, especially like young folks that write novels, it's just like, in your face, politics. And, it get, you know, I, I'm kind of sick of reading about it, to be totally honest. And when you're able to mesh it in subtly, it's it's much more pleasurable to read. Well, the characters, I think, uh, you know, a lot of, even even the representatives of the netted who we see tend to be much more sophisticated people you know and much more uh probably realistic people 
than I think just kind of cutouts and archetypes that they, they could have been. You know, you, you could have taken it and had everybody kind of be a little a little bit of cardboard. But uh, even some of the people who the family directly interacts with who are, you know, again, their, their motives are, are questionable always, but they do sometimes act like normal humans would. Yeah, you know, um, so, you know the, the, the term that we use in writing is that they're rounded characters. And, um, and uh, you know, I do think that in a general kind of way, I mean, and, uh, and of course, um, thank you, and I do spend a, a lot of time thinking about characterization, as I think you can tell. Um, and, you know, and I have to, you know, I have to say that, you know, as a, in, a, in a general kind of way, this tendency in fiction and also just in life, you know, to kind of caricature, caricature everybody who doesn't agree yeah. with you, yeah. I think is extremely problematic. Yeah, and, I um, and, you know, you know so, so someone who's on the opposite of the aisle, you know, they can do no right. But that's not right. I mean, <laughs> you know, they, they might see things a little bit differently than you. You know, look, you know, you can have a, a big argument about, you know, big government versus small government. But, you know, they're, 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 not, they're not inhuman. Do you know what I mean? I mean, like, you might disagree, but, you know, you cannot simply... You know, you don't like them, and, uh, and you, you refuse to see their humanity, you know? Yeah. And so as a fiction writer, I feel like, well, that's one of my jobs. I'm, I feel like a fiction writer's job is, is not to simplify, but to complicate, you know? Yeah, to complicate absolutely. The world. And, um, you know, Splinter O'Connor said that, and others have said it, and I, I just sort of feel like, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's my job. So when I'm listening to you guys, I'm, I'm thrilled because I feel like, okay, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I did what I'm supposed to do. Your job was a success. It was a success. Gish, we're running out of time real quick, and I do want to get to one final reading from your book. Real quick, do you have plans to to, uh, take Stephen's advice and and, uh, write another one of these? (laughs) If one more person asks me... Do you want me to punch him for you, Gish? I, I, I mean, I, I will confess that I've, I've actually, actually just finished up a, another book, actually, even as we speak, my delivery deadline of October 1st. Okay. Um, and it's a completely, completely, completely different book. Mm-hmm. Um, but at, but at, when that is done, and I think that after that I do need five minutes to have a cappuccino, please. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but then, you know, but after that, you know, I certainly will be looking at that very hard. I mean, so many people have asked me that um, I just, you know, but let me let me think about it. Good. I don't know. Well, we hope you'll and well, you'll join us again when your new book comes out. Yeah, yeah. Enjoy the cappuccino. Thanks. Keith. Yes, thank you. <laughs> and the new book is scheduled for next year. Do you have a title for it yet? Can, um, you can tell. It's, it's it's not. It's um 2022. 2022. Okay. Well, we'll and I think it's too early. I think. I mean, I I don't. Know. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh please, let me deliver my manuscript. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll look forward to it when it comes out. And we've been speaking, of course, with Gish Jen. Really, really appreciate your time today, Miss Jen. Thank you. She is the author oh, of. The Resistors. Uh, it's out now from Knopf Book. It's available at all bookstores and good libraries. Uh, Gish, have a great rest of your day. And uh, well, I mean, I would say go Red Sox, but as a White Sox fan, I find that very difficult to do. Go Sox? <laughs> but uh, I can say go Sox. <laughs> Thanks, Gish. Go Sox. We'll leave it there. <laughs> Thanks, guys. So we're, we're going to leave it with one final thing from Gish's book, and we'll be back next week. Uh, it's Maurice Meyer next week. Am I correct on that one? So Maurice Meyer next week. We'll see you again. Thanks so much for tuning in to I-94. The lead batter was an orange-eyed man with enormous shoulders. Gwen looked at him as though she too could retina sing. As for her message, it was one anyone could read. I'm going to get you. He raised his goatee as if to answer, I'm not afraid of your fastball. But it wasn't a fastball. It was her cutter. Strike one. Next she served him another cutter, a little lower. Strike two. Then, just when he may have thought he knew it was coming, a two-seam fastball. He walked away from the plate with his goatee held high but his eyes cast down. 
Two more batters followed, and just like that, it was three up, three down, the first inning. I did think my heart might burst with pride, even as I thought inexplicably of the word dispense, a word I had never been able to quite get across to my students way back when. If only they could have come to this game, then they could see how a pitcher might dispense with the batters. Meanwhile, people were back on their feet cheering, as was I. Only Andy sat still, her fingers flying over her handphone. She's working, she said. The secret weapon is working. Go Gwen! Normal enough behavior. Of the crowd, only Eleanor and I could appreciate how ironic it was actually for Andy to be cheering her old friend in this apparently wholehearted way. Was there a nefarious post-game scheme in the offing? Maybe it was paranoid to think so. Certainly, Andy gave no sign. In fact, eyeing her from the next seat, I thought her extra sharply absorbed in the way that people are when they have special investment in a game. And maybe she felt as she did, having done so much to get Gwen out there. In any event, she was looking down as much as up, maybe more. The Chine Russians can hit a fastball of any speed, but they don't know what to do with Gwen, she said. Was she speaking to me and Jill, or reading what she just read and sweeted? I couldn't tell. She's killing them, I said. Jill agreed. Go Gwen, she cheered. She squeezed the sides of her daisy-dotted handbag. In the next half inning, Team Auto America did not score, but did get at least a couple of hits. Then Gwen returned to the mound. She threw a curveball, a fastball, low and inside, and a changeup. The strikes began to accumulate. And then she'd done it again. Nine throws, no hits, no walks. The stadium was roaring. Just as Andy said, the Chine Russians truly did not know what to do with her. Do you know what she's going to throw? I asked Andy, because I'm not sure I do. Andy looked up from her handphone long enough to toss her hair back and answer. I did see most of those pitches coming, not all of them, but I can tell you what I'd probably call, and I can tell you what I know she'd shake off, and I can tell you whether she was likely to try something new or fall back on the old tried and true. I don't always know what the new pitch will be, and I don't always know what the safer bet would be, but yeah, I have some idea of what she'll do. Her head curved back down, her attention contracting so exactly to the size and shape of her screen that it was as if someone had selected attention and then hit fit to screen. It's a good thing that you're not in a position to tell the Chine Russians, I joked. She shrugged. Why would I do that? She sweeted on. Gwen gave up no hits in the third inning. She gave up no hits in the fourth. Perfect game, the crowd was chanting. Perfect game. Perfect game. Perfect game. Something I found a bit jarring. Long ago, no one ever dared utter a word if a perfect game was in the offing for fear of jinxing the pitcher. But there it was, times had changed. And in the meanwhile, Team Auto America was hitting steadily. One single, another, another. Other games of the series had also resembled the tortoise and the hare. But in this one, the tortoise was sure enough slowly scoring. Even Gwen managed a base hit, helping to bring a teammate home. Team Auto America had one run, two runs, three. It was a game like none of the others, a miracle. Gwen gave up no hits in the fifth inning, in the sixth. The stadium was thundering so loudly that had someone in an orbiting space hotel reported hearing the crowd, I would not have been surprised. I could hear that some of the netted were still yelling, Black tea! Black tea! But they were mostly chanting as were the surplus and as were we. Gwen E! Gwen E! USA! USA! Gwen E! Gwen E! USA! USA!
Four is Lumpen Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Gish Jen, author of The Resistors, out now from Not. This episode originally aired on September 24, 2020. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.